Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Our guests today are senior Washington correspondents for Politico and co-authors of Politico's Playbook, the most important, indispensable morning newsletter covering Washington and politics. Anna Palmer and Jake Sherman are also co-authors of the New York Times and national bestseller, The Hill to Die On, The Battle for Congress and the Future of Trump's America. Anna covers the world of Congress and politics and has successfully chronicled the business of Washington insiders for years. In addition to Playbook, Anna is also editorial director of Women Rule, a political platform that is dedicated to expanding leadership opportunities for women at all stages of their career. And since 2009, Jake has chronicled all of the major legislative battles on Capitol Hill and has also traveled the country to cover the battle for control of Congress. Jake is a political contributor to NBC News and MSNBC. Anna Palmer and Jake Sherman, welcome to Words Matter. Thanks, Thanks for, for having, having us. us. So before we get to your book, which I definitely want to get to, let's talk about Playbook. Starting in 2007 with Mike Allen and now with the two of you, Playbook is the essential must-read morning letter for everyone who works in or around Washington in politics, government, news, uh, or who cares about any of those things. On weekdays, it arrives in our inbox before 6 a.m. So the question I'm sure everyone asks you, what time do you wake up in the morning? Before Playbook, no one ever asked me. Yeah. (laughs) That is even... Really? Nobody cared? (laughs) No one cared. And Uh, I'm not sure why people really cared now. But But they find it interesting. Um, Usually between 3.30 and 4.00. We get online. Yowza. Yes, lots of coffee and um, lots of zen. You have to have, <laughs> zen and coffee, that's good. You have to have both of those things to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning. The second one I'm not sure is uh, is common in Washington. And so it's that's, not common that's with admirable. us either. <laughs> <laughs> so your readers are known as playbookers. And while the newsletter is about Washington, there are playbookers across the country and all around the world. So who are the most unexpected or the most interesting playbookers you've come across in your travels? Oh, man, that's a good question. Um, we kind of toured the Playbookers universe when we first, first took over in 2016 and met some interesting people. There have been some, like, random actors that have yeah, I was going to say Hollywood. Like, there's people that you wouldn't expect that yeah. are very – when the, we usually hear about it if they have an issue with the deliverability or you get this random email from someone. You're like, wow, I had no clue, no idea you really cared about what ha- was happening in the world. Like, I think – Maury Povich yeah. was, wow. was one, but he's he he's lived in D.C. for a long time yeah. or grew up in D.C. And, and has lived in New York, I guess. Um, most of the network executives, lots of members of Congress. Uh, John Cornyn, the senator from Texas, tweets out playbook every morning, uh, usually. Different tidbits. Usually he likes it. Sometimes he does not. Ah. Uh, but he tweets it out either way, and we're appreciative either way. God, there's a lot of people that I don't want to say any names in that get in trouble for, <laughs> for not saying somebody else. Yeah, we, I mean, we did a pretty 
rigorous. Uh, we made some decisions right when we took over. And part of that was doing this roadshow where we were in New York, we were in California. And then but we also did a lot of businesses in cities where they were heavily regulated industries, just to make sure that we were really covering the universe so that those folks, if they, you know, kind of weren't involved, you know, didn't know about Playbook, definitely knew about it. And I think we've been pretty studious about making sure that we continue to grow uh, the audience, particularly in the Trump era, where you have a lot of people that were coming into Washington for the first time. Yeah, that's smart. All right. So finally, last question on Playbook. I imagine uh, most people want to be mentioned in Playbook, whether an acknowledgement of their birthday or their attendance at a Washington event or in New York. Uh, I'm sure you get lobbied all day, every day for mentions. Have you ever had anyone ask not to be mentioned? Yes, all the time. Definitely. All the time. Oh, really? We've had people who've asked recently, um, someone pretty well known, I won't say how recently because I don't want to give it away, asked, they were getting married and asked if we would we would mind keeping it out of playbook because they were sure someone would send in a list of people who were there and they wanted their wedding to be a private thing. And we said, okay, you know, one thing I'd say that Anna and I have been particularly sensitive about since we're also both kind of private people, uh, less so than we were maybe three or four years ago. Definitely true. But um, we don't put in people's weddings or or babies pictures unless they like give us explicit permission because unless it's a a member of Congress for whom everything is public, we feel like some people deserve or most people deserve some modicum of privacy when it comes to their life cycle events, not yeah. their work life, um, right. but their their weddings, birthdays, blah, blah, blah. You know, I think that's something we've been more sensitive about. Yeah, absolutely. I guess, but I think there are actually kind of newsy spots that we often are doing and sometimes people will be very aggressive about how they do not want it to be sure. in playbook, and you just you know have to kind of say, "Well, sorry, man, it was, don't it was, go in public." There. It was in public. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm trying to think of an example, but you know, uh, public people. Well, I guess we have a, a few tidbit, a few rules. Public people in public is fair, fair game. game. It's a good one, I, you know. But like public people doing pedestrian things, I kind of try to leave out, like running if, down Massachusetts. Yeah, down. like if Congressman X is running or eating dinner or getting on the metro, unless he's getting on the metro with like. An interesting book that would tell us something more about their life. I think we try, we take it on a case case, oh, by yeah. case basis. You know, the spotted's with the book in hand. That yes. could that yeah. could get you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so it's it's a it's an art, not a science. I'd say. Right. Well, certainly one that you guys have uh, mastered. All right. Thank so you. let's talk about the book, uh, "The Hill to Die On: The Battle for Congress and the Future of Trump's America." It covers the period from Election Day 2016 until February 2019. And let me first say for anyone who's interested in Washington uh, and how it works. This is definitely the book for you. There's an expression in Washington we say, in the room. And Jake and Anna do an amazing job of taking us in the room here. Uh, You begin with House Speaker Paul Ryan, who described himself as not a Trump guy. So let's start there. The Ryan and Trump relationship got off to a rocky start. And it was pretty much downhill from there. Uh, And at the same time, Ryan faced division within his own caucus. uh, And explain how election night 2016 changed Paul Ryan's world. Oh, God, in every single way. I mean, Paul Ryan was an ideas, what he liked to say, an ideas guy who uh, represented the intellectual branch of the Republican Party and not the celebrity crude branch of the Republican Party, which had taken off way before Donald Trump, but kind of dismissed that, didn't like to play in the 
in the kind of flashy cable game of TV and of, of that side of the Republican politics. And and remember, this is a guy who made his bones uh, talking about like entitlement reform and right. the intricacies of the tax code. And throughout the 2016 campaign, Paul Ryan dragged his feet in endorsing Donald Trump and in getting behind Donald Trump. He never campaigned for Donald Trump they once. They were never even in a photo together. They, so think about that. That's so yeah, crazy. That's remarkable. And Paul Ryan was the chairman of the of convention the, right. in, in Cleveland. They made That's, that's got to be a first. Yeah, yes. they took pains to not be together. And his world was kind of dismantled on that night where he did not expect for Donald Trump to win. He thought Hillary Clinton would win. And he started to think about how he would comport himself in Hillary Clinton's Washington. Instead, he was leading. He was the speaker, the number three person in government for an all Republican Washington led by a guy who, as Mitch McConnell likes to say, a president who was donating and raising money for Chuck Schumer, a Democrat, just three or four, five years ago. So he is kind of the tip of the spear of of how conservative Washington was shook by Donald Trump. I mean, they were really grappling, right, with what the future of the Republican Party was going to be. I think the book really illustrates in a behind the scenes way, in the room way of how their relationship was bad from the start and it only got worse as Paul Ryan tried to convince the president to do things or to hold off on things in terms of shutting the government down over you know border wall funding and you really see they these two people could not be more different from each other now speaker ryan wasn't the only house leader to have his world upended uh talk about democratic leader nancy pelosi and how election night changed her political future she was really seriously considering stepping down if um, Hillary Clinton had been president. I think she felt like her legacy, which truly at that moment was Obamacare, would be intact. You know, I think all of a sudden she felt in speaking with her that she was the only person in the House Democratic Caucus who could do what needed to be done to kind of be the opposition to Donald Trump. And believe me, she was not uh, that was not necessarily a popular idea at the time. A lot of people wanted her to step down. There was a lot of agitation among Democrats that were frustrated by years and years of losses, that they were still being represented by members in their mid-70s. And she really, I think, exhibited such strength and kind of power of purpose in her ability to just continue to move the ball forward and almost just will her leadership into being. Put her head down and just get the work done. She went on PBS on election night 2016 and said something like, I think Judy Woodruff interviewed her and she said, you're the highest ranking person in female in in government. And she looked at her watch and said, right now, you know, that won't be, this is not a quote, but she said something like, right for now, but it won't be that way in the next couple hours, which is like, that is a statement of confidence. (laughs) And Donald Trump called her on election night shortly after, and they had a, a conversation that Donald Trump basically said, I was a big supporter of yours. No one's as great as you or some permutation of that sort of Trumpian Trumpian line. Pelosi was obviously quite skeptical, but she knew Donald Trump. They had existed in these concentric circles in New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, high Democratic life because people forget Donald Trump was a Democrat for 70 something years until he decided to be a Republican. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about the Senate a little bit, too. Um, And here's what you write in the book. Perhaps no institution in the world was as essentially polar from Donald Trump as the U.S. Senate. 
The president often seemed to have no use for norms, but the Senate lived and died by them. And Senate traditions and customs dated back to the earliest days of its existence. So tell us about an early meeting that included John McCain and Jared Kushner. Yeah. God, this is emblematic of so much with Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump, who seem to dip in and out of government as if it's like a book of some sort that you read when you're bored. Jared Kushner was in the White House with John McCain and John McCain, who famously split with the president after many of these episodes. But Jared Kushner and John McCain, they were in the Oval Office and John McCain was talking about military procurement reform and um, how it was a longtime passion, passion of passion. his and, and, and priority of his. And Jared Kushner said something like, you know, Senator, don't worry. We're going to reform and we're going to rework the entire government and how government works. And McCain looked at him and said, good luck, son. Um, <laughs> and I actually regret I, – and maybe I haven't said this before, but I, I wish we could have talked to McCain about that episode. But by the time we we kind of started really reporting on this, we, we signed our book contract in June or so of 2017 after kind of reporting silently for a couple of months. And McCain was just about to get really sick then. Yeah, yeah it was and, not. And it was yeah, not a good it was not a good time. He wasn't giving interviews or anything like that. Yeah. So I, I wish just for knowing McCain and how interested he would have been in talking about that. It's a shame that we didn't get to. That is a shame. I can only imagine. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about Mitch McConnell. Uh, on the one hand, he has been enormously successful mm-hmm. at getting judges through, including two Supreme Court justices through the Senate during this period. But on the other hand, he hasn't really gotten much else done. Uh, the example you use in the book is the Republicans' failure to repeal the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare. Explain how that failure limits Mitch McConnell's power. It shows the limitation of the the leader in the Senate to to will things into into being. He is the most powerful, I think, along with Pelosi, person in the Capitol. His members follow him no matter what. But I think healthcare has always been a huge stumbling block in politics. You know, you have to remember Democrats only got Obamacare after more than two years and they had been working on what they wanted to do for 20 plus. So I think what happened, though, when you look at it, it's very interesting because as much as healthcare was devastating at the time because they had promised for years and years and years repeal and replace, but they didn't have anything to really replace it with that they had agreed upon, made room for tax reform. And really, I think without that failure, they would not have been able to move a bill that, you know, rewrote the tax code as as dramatically as had been done since 1986. I will say this, though, and bring this into kind of the current moment. Republicans have long talked about reshaping the judiciary as being their top priority. And Mitch McConnell, probably more than anybody, has talked about that. And what you're seeing right now, and Anna and I talked to McConnell about this at length it, it, for the book, and and People dismissed it as, ah, whatever, like judges are judges and like they're not that important. I think Democrat. <laughs> I think Democrats. It's not a motivating. It's not a motivating Democrats. factor for Democrats. But now you see Mitch McConnell has, I think, confirmed last week his 150th circuit and, and district. And I think that includes Supreme Court, but federal judge. And he has reshaped the judiciary with people not in their 70s and 80s. And I mean, people in their 40s and 50s. The, Very young. The judiciary is going to be rightward leaning for a long time. And Mitch McConnell says, if if you appreciate like I do a center-right America, not me, but Mitch McConnell, uh, then this is a good thing for you. And I mean, it's, it's stunning. His efficiency and two Supreme Court justices and more than 100 other federal judges is amazing. Yes. 
you say present tense, it's not a motivating factor. Is that still the case? Or do you think the Democrats have shifted their perspective in light of the success on the other side and seeing the long term game here? I mean, I think what you saw. In the- You'd hope so if you were a Democrat, right? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I really just don't think they have not for I mean, this is this has been years and years and years of the Republicans having the Federal Society, having all of this grassroots Christian conservatives who have been so focused on the judiciary. I just don't think Democrats are motivated or, and are maybe playing catch up. They certainly seem to be focused on it more with the Brett Kavanaugh nomination. But Brett Kavanaugh, I think most Republicans would say was just as motivating for their base as it was for Democrats. Right. I'm going to get to Kavanaugh uh, yeah. uh, shortly, especially right. in light of recent news. But one thing you spend some time on your book, uh, and I, I want to talk about during the period of your book, something tragic happened uh, as the congressional Republicans were practicing for the annual congressional baseball game for charity. Uh, take us back to June 14th, 2017, and tell us what happened. Our book is, we hope, about people and not necessarily about policy and the intricacies of policy, although it's somewhat about that too. And Steve Scalise, the number three at the time House Republican from Louisiana, from New Orleans, loved baseball, loved the baseball game. They were out in Alexandria practicing for this game, which is played every year in the National Stadium. And and a guy came with a gun and shot up the entire field. The only reason we didn't have 20 or 30 or so dead Republican congressmen is that Steve Scalise was there. He's a member of leadership with a police detail. And the police detail killed this shooter before he could kill anybody and shoot more people. And and Steve Scalise escaped and arrived at the hospital here in in Washington, um, basically dead and uh, on on death's door. And uh, his kind of healing and revival as a human being and as a politician uh, from that shooting is one of the narratives that we only scratch the surface of in this book. And if Republicans would have kept the majority – I think he there was a chance he could have challenged Kevin McCarthy, the top Republican for the speakership. He almost challenged – our book ends with him almost challenging uh, Kevin McCarthy for the minority leader slot or uh, because Scalise after the shooting, which brought him closer to Donald Trump and brought him closer to a lot of Republicans, felt a new urgency and a new, a new braveness in a sense to um, uh, be himself and to be more outgoing. Okay, so I, I want to get to the Brett Kavanaugh nomination uh, b- before we end. So uh, initially, the issue and there's a lot to talk about. There. <laughs> there's so much here. I have I have more questions than you have time. Uh, initially, the issue was getting documents from the Bush White House, where Kavanaugh had served as staff secretary. Senate Republicans were worried that they would be buried under a mountain of documents, uh, and the Democrats on the Senate Judiciary Committee did request the documents from the Bush year. A request that was so broad, it was totally impractical. So then they started negotiating. Um, So I have to say, I found this passage from the book fascinating. uh, And here's what you wrote. Republicans were concerned that Democrats would ask for all Kavanaugh's records as staff secretary, a request that would have produced 1.1 million records to which Republicans said they would have had to accede. If Democrats went this route, Republicans believed they would have had to wait until 2019 to confirm Kavanaugh. But the Democrats didn't make the request. I had to read that passage at least three times. So you guys are saying that the Senate Democrats could have delayed Kavanaugh's vote until 2019 if they had made a simple document request, but they didn't. 
I think that was the fear that Republicans had, that, that they would have to – that it was – they were concerned about how they were going to limit the scope of what the requests were going to be. So from their perspective, that they they felt like if, if it had to go forward, there was going to be so many documents that it would have been cumbersome and would have taken months and months and months. I think what would the issue – if you go back and it's kind of – it's amazing because that time period seems so long ago, even though it was a short time ago, was really Democrats were trying to find any way – to stop this Kavanaugh nomination. And they felt like they were kind of going down a bunch of fishing expeditions and the press wasn't really paying attention and they couldn't get even some of the things they felt were, you know, kind of live wire. They couldn't get anybody excited about it. And it was almost because they were process issues. Yeah, exactly. And then nobody, you know, reporters have a hard time and, and the public doesn't really care because they're very hard to explain. And so I think Democrats found this like massive pressure to try to find any you know way to make an inroads on it, and Republicans and I think Mitch McConnell really did a very good job of just basically making this an inevitable vote that was going to happen, and the time frame was very short. I would I would add one thing to that just to rewind a little bit on top of what Anna, in addition to what Anna said because she's one hundred percent right. Uh, McConnell and Grassley, who we both interviewed for the book. Uh, a few t- well, anyway, we both interviewed for the book. They were concerned about the records issues, as we des- we describe in the book. I mean, McConnell made clear to Trump, and and Grassley shared these concerns, according to Grassley, that picking someone like Kavanaugh, who had a twenty or so year history in government dating back to the the Bill Clinton impeachment. It just is too much paper, meaning there are too many records people can get their hands on. And McConnell, I think, was afraid the Democrats would have been savvy and asked for that. Um, but Trump said, you know what? Actually, I'm going to go with this guy anyway. He was a, he was not Mitch McConnell's top choice. No, McConnell uh, had there was a candidate from Kentucky that he wanted who was a federal judge whose name is escaping my mind. And there was uh, he, there was uh, Amy Coney Barrett yeah. from Indiana, who's yeah. another woman with a very limited paper trail yep. who the White House wanted to stash away for another potential opening at some point in time. So it's not as if Republicans didn't see the the mountains of paper as a huge issue for, for Kavanaugh. They did, and they tried to get Trump off of it. So going back to the those first few days of the Kavanaugh confirmation, things were pretty routine uh, until the existence of a letter from then an unidentified woman detailed allegations of sexual misconduct against Kavanaugh dating from his high school years. So let's talk about the FBI investigation that followed. It has been in the news a lot recently. Uh, you wrote about it in your book. Uh, you point out that it was Mitch McConnell and not the White House who set the parameters for the FBI investigation. What were those parameters? I think this is a classic McConnell uh, scenario where he basically called his members into his office and realized he didn't have the votes to confirm him and figured what he needed to get done. And so the parameters were very specific. It was – yeah, it was – and exactly what Anna said. Like he, he needed to find a way to get the votes and, and enough Republicans were saying we would be comfortable with a little bit more investigation into these allegations. That was my next question. Yeah, so, so <laughs> I, I think the parameters were they could not talk to Michael Avenatti or anybody that Avenatti was representing or putting forth. And they had to be – it was a limited time frame. And they can only talk to, I think – God, you're quizzing yeah, us. I know. We don't remember, but, it's been a long time. But anyway, he, lim- he, limited, he limited the scope of this investigation to both, both time and people that they could talk to. So uh, the FBI basically told him at that point, we could do this. Unfortunately, it's not going to turn up much, but we could do this. Uh, and we and we anticipate we'll be able to do it within your time frame. 
and they did and nothing else came up and 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 that was that and then he got the votes but in to, you're exactly right in today's light we kind of do see that uh the limitations of that second investigation and the first investigation frankly did have impact and maybe helped solidify Kavanaugh's spot on the bench Many thought that the Kavanaugh nomination would cost the Republicans the Senate, but it didn't. In fact, Mitch McConnell saw that it energized the Republican base, and that's what you were talking about, and cast him in a positive light with those voters. He said it made him a rock star. <laughs> Explain what this he got a lot of attention. <laughs> yeah. Explain what he meant by that and how it helped Senate Republicans politically in 2018. It was interesting. We were writing this chapter, and we, you know, we didn't anticipate writing about the Supreme Court and the nominations. That was not even when we started this book. And all of a sudden, you know, we had this kind of hole where we really needed to, to tell the story of what happened, and we wanted to do that through Mitch McConnell, since he does see his legacy as ju- the judiciary. And so we, our editor kept asking us, you know, like, how does, how does he feel? You know, like the country's in this tense moment and everybody's, you know, I mean, fraud. It's like a live wire in Washington. You couldn't go to a bar and talk to people from the other party. I mean, it's unlike anything yeah. I've ever seen. And so sometimes, as I think Jake has often said, like sometimes the most illuminating thing is what people don't say. And so at the end, we kept pressing him in this interview to say, you know, wow, I mean, the country was really, you know, at a, at a bad place. Well, like, how did it impact you? And I think in the book it says his poll, poll ratings went up. He was being praised on talk radio. Every single speech he was giving was being live, taken on all of the cable networks. And, like, he was a rock star. I mean, yeah. he, he knew it wasn't going to last. But for that moment, that was his strong takeaway was not that this was going to be bad for the country, but that was this was going to have his moment to shine. And also, like, it, it, it for, for liberals and for Democrats, it's exactly why they hate Mitch McConnell. It's because he's like, I wanted to get this guy confirmed. I recognized people were saying things about them. I didn't necessarily believe them. And I did what I needed to do to get him across the finish line. And now I'm going to move on with my life. And he said recently in the light of these new allegations, yep. he said Brett Kavanaugh will be a Supreme Court justice until he decides he doesn't want to be anymore. Right. So I guess that answers my question. And by the way, with... Democrats are saying that too. So Yeah. <laughs> so with all the rumblings lately, there was a little bit. Maybe it's just a partisan cable news talking point yes, over the is. weekend. N- no impeachment. And, I mean, political opportunism I mean, right, based po- on all of the t- – a lot of the 2020 Democratic candidates who are looking to try to make headway um, and, and increase their numbers in the polls. And, right? and, and frankly, Democrats are now saying impeachment can't be the the solution for all of our problems. And even Senate Democrats are saying we're not going to impeach Brett Kavanaugh. And Pelosi has said that. Jerry Nadler has said that. Yeah. So Brett Kavanaugh is a Supreme Court justice. Whatever you think of the allegations, uh, that's what's going to happen. And Democrats uh, are now finally realizing they have to win elections to, to put people on the bench. All right. So last question. You end the book in February 2019, uh, the opening uh, days of the 116th Congress. Talk a little bit about the shutdown and the rise of Nancy Pelosi. Yeah, the White House made a horrible miscalculation. I mean, President Trump was elected on a promise, basically an unambiguous promise to build a barrier on the border with Mexico that Mexico would pay for. He couldn't get Mexico to pay for it. He tried and almost got Democrats to pay for it. Democrats actually conceded they would help pay for the wall and he dropped the ball on that because his negotiation skills with Democrats, they they didn't really get off the ground. Now, Mark Meadows and Jim Jordan, two arch conservatives, very conservative people, rabble rousers who are close to the president who are main characters in the book, convinced the president 
to dig in and to shut down the government because they believe Nancy Pelosi and everybody would blink and people's incentive structures get skewed and they would give him the wall. Of course, 40-something days later, they hadn't given him the wall. And the White House kept telling us, and it's amazing to to think of this now, the White House kept saying, Nancy Pelosi can't keep this position. She'll blink. She's in Hawaii for vacation. She's she's out of touch. And like Nancy Pelosi's like, there's no wall. I don't know what you're missing here. I don't understand what you don't understand, but I'm not giving votes to build your wall with Mexico. And she kept that position and Donald Trump ended the shutdown without a wall and without any money for a wall. Yeah, I I think what was so interesting, we sat down with the president in the Oval Office for an interview. And I think the key miscalculation that he had was – Paul Ryan had let him down so many times, had promised things and then had had to cave or couldn't follow through. And what he said to us was he had some some real almost was awe-inspired by Pelosi and her ability to keep her troops together. He said in that interview, you know, Democrats have lousy ideas, but they stick together. And that I think she showed how much they will stick together and they will follow her down the, the road. And so far, she hasn't let them down. And by the way, you're seeing that now with impeachment. I was going to ask, like, so with the congressional <laughs> oversight and impeachment, you think she still has all of her troops in line? I mean, She's held it off for however many months. Nine or almost 10 months. Yeah, and right. we'll see if, I mean, she looks like she's holding her people together quite well. Yeah. All right. Well, the book is called The Hill to Die On, The Battle for Congress and the Future of Trump's America. It's an amazing read, a must-have for everyone who cares about what's happening in Washington. Anna Palmer and Jake Sherman, thank you for joining us and thank you for writing it. Thank Thanks you. so much. Katie, that was a great interview with Anna and Jake. A lot of people wake up to Playbook on Politico in the morning, but their book really brings you inside the room up on Capitol Hill. It was great. And a lot of people wake up to Playbook because they wake up earlier than the rest of Washington and get it going for us. I want to get your thoughts on a a few things that happened last week. We talked about the Democratic debate on the last episode, and you were ahead of the curve when you told us that we were further away from knowing who the 2020 Democratic nominee would be than we had been before the debate. And to your point, with new polls out last week, the rise of Elizabeth Warren has become the most recent narrative. So that's obviously good news for Team Warren. But what are the dangers and hazards for a campaign as a candidate starts to move from the middle to the front of the pack? You know, one of the ways we pick our presidential candidates, and um, it's not a perfect system, but uh, the media decides to pick them apart and see what they can take. And that um, treatment is normally reserved for the front runner. Uh, Joe Biden um, has had it now since he got into the race, even before he got into the race. Uh, his campaign has complained bitterly about how unfair it is. And in some sense, it is unfair, uh, but it's just the way things are. The closer you are to actually being president, the harder the media will look at what you've done, what you've said, what you've written, uh, your proposals, how they add up, all of that stuff. So I think Elizabeth Warren is about to enter a new phase where if this moves towards a two-person race, uh, she will be vetted in the same way Joe Biden is. Um, that presents some challenge to her, but also an opportunity. Um, one of the things that she has to prove uh, is that she's up for dealing with the media game that happens in presidential uh, politics. It's hard to predict. You just never know how someone's going to handle it. I will say this about Elizabeth Warren. She's been faced with several challenges throughout this campaign. And except for 
screwing up the Native American ancestry issue at the beginning, she has exceeded expectations on every challenge. So there's every reason to believe she's up to this challenge. But we're just going to have to see. It, it is a new phase for her. It is a harder phase for her. But there's no reason to believe that, uh, A, her campaign is not aware of that, and B, as Elizabeth Warren likes to say, that they don't have a plan for it. Right, exactly. It sounds like she plans on the selfie lines getting longer and longer and sticking around for all of them. All right. So also last week, we saw former Trump campaign manager Corey Lewandowski appear on Capitol Hill before the House Judiciary Committee. Now, it's hard to remember a more combative, confrontational or hostile witness to testify before any congressional committee. Talk a little bit about his testimony and how the House Democrats responded. The Lewandowski testimony is the latest example of the White House approach to congressional oversight which is to basically say, screw you. And he's uniquely qualified uh, to be obnoxious and uh, uh, somewhat loathsome. Uh, and he delivered uh, on the promise. Uh, the Republican strategy uh, on the Hill is to turn this into a circus, to make this seem so ridiculous that no one can take uh, what's going on there seriously. And they played their part very well. I think Republicans... Doug Collins and uh, his merry band of small thinkers executed uh, very well. And and Lewandowski was very good uh, at playing his part. The Democrats on the committee didn't quite seem prepared um, for the Lewandowski show. The the problem with members of Congress is they're not – by and large, they're not former prosecutors. By and large, they're not former defense attorneys. They're, they're politicians, and their instinct is to show people what they know before finding out what the person they're asking questions know. Uh, and it doesn't fit very well, particularly with someone character like Lewandowski. Now, that's for Democrats, that's the bad news. The good news is that within the rules that they passed um, a couple of weeks ago, they allowed for committee counsel to spend 30 minutes uh, questioning the witness. And if you were uh, brave enough, patient enough, have no life enough to have stayed around to the end, you would have seen how it's done. And it's interesting about Burke. Um, There were a lot of people who said, that's why we need former prosecutors to ask these questions. Well, he's not a former prosecutor. He's a defense attorney. And what it was was a classic cross-examination. He took Lewandowski apart. By the end of the 30 minutes... Uh, You knew Lewandowski was a self-admitted liar, and you knew much more importantly that Donald Trump had instructed him to obstruct justice, and Lewandowski was smart enough, uh, as loathsome as you might find him, to not do it. And why is that important? Because it shows consciousness of guilt. Lewandowski knew what Trump was asking him to do was illegal, and he refused to do it in order to save himself. If the Democrats idea of these hearings is to bring to life the Mueller report. Lewandowski brought it to life. You had to wade through a lot of nonsense and bullshit, but he got that done. The second piece that the media latched on to, because it's about the media, and the media likes nothing more than talking about the media, was Lewandowski's somewhat remarkable statement that, yes, he lies to the press because he has no obligation to tell the press the truth. 
It's ironic that Lewandowski, Lewandowski as a known liar, told the truth about his lying. You know, and right. and you could trust that he was telling the truth by the way he was telling the story. But irony aside, and um, I have to say, as a as a side point, if there's anything that's died more than the Trump era, it's irony. Uh, but you know, we can talk about that some other time. But it has set off a rather heated debate within the media uh, about, well, what do you do when a guy says and admits, I'm going to tell you lies when I'm on your TV show? Yeah, so he's honest about lying and the media wanted to talk about that. But then CNN booked him the next day. Yeah, at the risk of biting the hand that feeds me, it says I am a CNN contributor. I I think that was a mistake. I don't think it's uh, a black and white issue. There are a couple of good things that came out of that interview. The exchange between uh, Lewandowski and, and Allison Camerata, who's a great journalist, um, when he talked about uh, no collusion, no obstruction, and she pointed out that the report didn't say that, and he said, of course it didn't. She said, have you read the report? And he said, no. Right in there, it laid bare a major Achilles heel of the Republican strategy. So I think that was worth having on TV. But I think on balance, that when someone says that they're not going to tell the truth, they've lost the right to have the platform. And I know it was a tough call at CNN. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall um, for that conversation. I wasn't. I think it's part of the broader thing that we've talked about here um, a, a good bit. This goes mostly for television and live television. There's an implicit agreement there that I am going to do my best as a newsmaker to tell you the truth. Now, I can spin all I want, but I can't just make things up out of whole cloth. I can't just lie about it. I can't just say I wasn't in the room for that when everyone knows you were in the room for that. Uh, and uh, in return, the media agrees to let, let you use their platform to get, to get your message out. Uh, and they agree to ask questions based on fact as opposed to making things up. And we've got a president now who has lied over 12,000 times, according to The Washington Post, and he violates that agreement every time he goes out. There's nothing in the Constitution that says the president has the right to be on live TV, and there's nothing in that that harms America's national interests if when the president speaks in front of a helicopter, it airs 30 minutes later, uh, as opposed to on live TV. Unfortunately, the media's obsession with getting things first as opposed to getting things right tends to trump, no pun intended, the idea that they are constantly putting out information uh, to the public that's not true, that they know is not true. All right. So I want to switch gears a little bit uh, and get your take on something uh, we talked about with Anna and Jake. There was new information in a new book about Brett Kavanaugh last week that caused many Democrats to call for his impeachment. Now, first on the politics, Republicans seemed to welcome this because they believe they held the Senate because of Kavanaugh and that it's a winning issue for them. Are they correct in that analysis? In the micro sense, it's a winning issue for them. Uh, It's a winning issue for them because Republicans are split. I'd put them in three different groups. One group is people who enthusiastically support Donald Trump. The second group is people who uh, loathe Donald Trump but are afraid of him politically uh, and hold their nose and go along. Uh, The third group is the never-Trumpers, the Bill Crystals of the world. Kavanaugh 
was the event that brought all of these groups together. And for a very short period of time, the Republican Party spoke as one and was moving in uh, the direction. And that surprised Democrats, surprised me a little bit. But I only say that that helps them in the micro sense, because I think in the macro sense, the next election, I think it's going to hurt them because the election, in my view, is going to be decided by turnout among suburban women and African-Americans, particularly African-American women. And this debate doesn't help them. This debate, we don't believe the woman, the white privileged symbol of the patriarchy who's protected by the patriarchy, uh, can get away with anything no matter what, is a message that hurts. I don't think they get very much out of this. And I think it. I think the Democrats do get a lot out of it politically. Well, let's talk about the substance and the the Times, the New York Times clearly botched the rollout of the book and the story. And House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler said he doesn't have time to focus on Kavanaugh. He's focused on President Trump. So Jake and Anna said nothing's going to happen. But do you think anything different? I, I expect nothing will happen. Although, like everything, nothing's ever over till it's over. And, and in my view, something should happen. We sometimes uh, decide that since this is already finished, there's, there's never a reason to go back. And this story, however the New York Times handled it, is the best example of the world of why we should go back. Uh, and if Brett Kavanaugh was innocent, why he should want to go back. From his perspective, this is going to hang over his career forever. It was outrageous at the time that the Republicans in the Senate and the White House constrained the FBI from following legitimate leads. It's even more outrageous now when we find out more details of what those leads were. There's no excuse in our democracy for, particularly with a lifetime appointment, that the Constitution set up as something that should have bipartisan support. Uh, for us as the American people not to know all the facts. These facts, uh, by and large, are knowable. And Republicans made sure that we never knew is just completely unacceptable for a, a member of the Supreme Court. So just because Jerry Nadler doesn't have time for it doesn't mean that this should go away. And again, um, we will be in a different place uh, one way or the other in uh, 2021. We'll either have a new president or we'll be hurtling down the road of democracy dying in an authoritarian regime and five terms for Donald Trump. Not to be hyperbolic or anything. Yeah, right. Well, actually, speaking of, I know we need to find uh, some new words to communicate unprecedented and stunning. Uh, but last week, we also saw President Trump suggest that the U.S. was ready to retaliate against Iran for an attack on Saudi Arabia, a U.S. ally, but a country we don't have a mutual defense treaty or agreement with. What are the implications for U.S. foreign policy here? Well, there's a, there's a lot of them. With the departure of John Bolton, but not because he departed, it shows that we don't have a an integrated uh, national security uh, policy process. It reflects sort of a dangerous anarchy in our foreign policy infrastructure. Sometimes you do things to keep the, your opponent um, off balance. Uh, in this case, uh, we're doing it because we don't know what we're doing. And uh, that is in and of itself a very big problem for the United States. 
And finally, Joe, last week we learned that an intelligence community whistleblower had filed a formal complaint about the conduct of the president of the United States in conversations with a foreign leader. The intelligence community inspector general deemed the complaint urgent and credible. And yet the acting director of national intelligence did not report the complaint to the House Intelligence Committee as required by law, this setting up a confrontation with serious constitutional implications. Now, Joe, it's hard to know at this early stage, but where do you see this going? Katie, before you said we needed new words for stunning and unprecedented. Katie, if you've got better words for it, now's the time to jump in. That the president did something on a call that so alarmed someone in the intelligence community that they'd go using the whistleblower statute to file a formal five-alarm fire. And then that complaint, the inspector general deemed alarming enough to pass on to the ONDI, the National Director of Intelligence. So this has to be something that is unprecedented. Uh, but it, again, it is stunning that uh, someone in the intelligence uh, community would feel they needed to take this step. Uh, and then the IG almost immediately agreed. The acting national director of intelligence is required by law to inform Congress that there is a whistleblower complaint and then forward the complaint to Congress. The law is clear. Uh, the whistleblower law is clear. And the administration seems to have problems overall with the word shall. They just look at the law and say, well, we don't care what the law is. We're just not going to do it, which, again, sets up this constitutional issue that keeps kind of rearing its head on multiple levels. And courts are going to have to uh, decide. There is no privilege in the law that overrides this statute. And and there's a reason for it. Whistleblowers blow the whistle, taking great personal risks to themselves. At a minimum, just their career. At a maximum, um, the, the kind of public pressure that ruins people's lives. So in the law, there is a safeguard built in that the IG is allowed to make a determination, not the person's boss, because often it's the person's boss who's involved in the wrongdoing. So the inspector general has the authority to deem something uh, alarming enough to go forward and have it trigger the report to Congress. There's nothing in the law that, that allows for wiggle room. And what we do know here is based on the way the, the correspondence has gone back and forth, that whatever step that was taken that so alarmed the whistleblower and the inspector general, that step was taken by the president because the acting uh, national director of intelligence said that he was outranked on this decision. There was someone who didn't want this to be sent to Congress. Uh, so it's no surprise that, uh, once again, when it comes to stonewalling, it lands in the Oval Office. We've been at this stage you know, many times in the Trump administration where we think, boy, this couldn't you couldn't find something that was worse than what happened last week. This one, I think we need to bracket. To that end, rather than speculate uh, on what it is, 
uh, we will uh, early next week bring in one of our great uh, intelligence and legal experts to walk us through uh, with a little more detail and a lot more knowledge than I have. So, Katie, I think our listeners can expect something early in the week uh, that just looks at this issue and uh, tries to fill in the many blanks that, that unfortunately, uh, are there for all of us now. Well, we'll look forward to that. Until then, thanks for joining us this week and letting us know what's on your mind, Joe. Thanks, Katie. Adam, I know you wanted to tell our listeners about a great new podcast. Yes, Katie. It's the 2020 election ride home. Some have called the 2020 election a battle for America's soul. Well, if you want to keep up with the latest developments on that important battle, this is the podcast for you. Every day at 5 p.m. Eastern, veteran journalist and This American Life contributor Chris Higgins catches you up on what happened on the campaign trail that day. Who's up? Who's down? What issues are getting traction? What the polls say, it's a 15 to 20 minute show that keeps track of all the latest and summarizes it so you don't have to be looking at your phone 12 times a day. So if you want to catch up on what you missed on your way home, search your podcast app and subscribe to the Election Ride Home podcast. It's a great listen. That's the Election Ride Home podcast every day at 5 p.m. available from your podcast provider. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. For more information on our show and hosts, visit wordsmattermedia.com. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.